Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, December 10th, 2010. It'll be a fun program today. I've got way too much to talk about than I'm going to be capable of talking about. So I, I warn you ahead of time that uh, the things that I say I might want to talk about, they're just suggestions. It just depends on... Um, sunspots, um, moon dust, and um, whatever I feel like. In other words, I'm being completely capricious today. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God, to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. And it's really a tragedy. It, 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 uh, how do I put this? Uh, excuse me while I try to you know, plow through my mind a little bit to try to figure out how to communicate what it is that I'm thinking. Because uh, you know, let's just say the, um, the past, let's say, three to four weeks, have been weeks that have challenged me and have stretched me in ways that I don't think I have been challenged and stretched in a long time. And um, as a result of it, you know, I'm, I'm trying to uh, communicate where, where, where I think this is taking me. And that's probably a better way of putting it. And, and, and the idea is, is that as I continue to wrestle with God's Word, wrestle with what's happening in, you know, in the church today, and uh, and come to grips with how this squares with the idea that we don't battle against flesh and blood, but we're instead we're battling for flesh and blood, if you would, battling for our fellow human beings, our brothers and sisters in Adam, uh, that uh, you know those who were created in the image of God and have fallen and are enslaved by sin, death, and the devil, and and we have this great good news, this amazing, amazing story. Of of God incarnate come to earth to save and to you know to seek and save wretched and lost sinners like you and like me sinners who are blind in their and and dead in trespasses and sins and uh, over and again what I'm finding is is that the church seems to be a uh well a a growing missionary field if you would. And uh, it's a strange way to you know to look at the church to think of the church as a mission field, but that's I think where we're at right now is that it, it, the, I think the great tragedy is is that 
some of the churches that 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 are garnering the largest market share if you would that have the uh, the greatest amount of financial resources have the have, have the greatest uh praise bands and and multimedia presentations and web savvy websites with you know with multiple multiple expensive redundant servers and and stuff and and all of this and then when it comes time to hear the word of the lord what you're getting for the from them isn't the greatest it isn't the it's not even close it's it's rank poverty it, i mean seriously um you know one of the things i used to joke about and uh you know <laughs> i still do this from time to time is that you know I'm an underweight fat guy, and you know I'm working on trying to become an overweight skinny guy, and uh, and and so you know I I'm working out and and trying to watch what I eat and 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 it's it's working. I'm getting some results. I'm 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 shedding some pounds. I'm very happy about that. But I've done this before. It's the thing is that I got to stick with it. Anyway, I'm off topic. Coming back to this this idea is that I jokingly tell people that you know don't be fooled by my exterior okay yeah because you know god gifted me in other ways then you know i i don't look like you know a young arnold schwarzenegger and, and and as a result of it if you could really truly see me you would realize that i have chiseled abs that i have huge muscles and yeah <clears throat> hang on a second here i gotta choke on this chicken bone yeah yeah anyway it, it i say that jokingly but the idea here is is that I'm claiming that there's more to me than this uh than this plump exterior that internally God has given has given me health of a kind that um I you know I I don't take it for granted. You know, the health that I have may not be physical health, but the health I have is the health that comes from one who has been given the gift of being grafted into the vine of Jesus Christ and bearing fruit in keeping with repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And um, and so there's different ways to look at things. And so if you were to go into many, and not all, but many of the modern megachurches today, um, if you were to just judge them on mere appearances, you would think, wow, this is a place where something really deep and profound and rich is taking place. But you would be wrong. What's happening in those churches is isn't it isn't deep, it isn't profound, it isn't rich. It's rank poverty. And um and the reason why it is rank poverty is because for all the money that they spend, for all the HD equipment that they have, for all of the uh for you know, for the theater style seats in their coffee house and their little mini strip mall inside their church, uh, the what they don't have is God's word. And what, when they when they're given God's word, it's given to them piecemeal. It's not even a meal. the The God's word becomes, well, the seasoning on on some other type of meal. And um. If you were to strip away all of the exteriors and see it with the eyes that God calls us to look at, to not look at a mere appearances, but to really truly see it for what it is, what you would discover is that in so many seeker-driven megachurches, what we're dealing with there 
is not wealth. We're deal- I mean, if you could see them for what they were, you would realize you were traveling into some of the worst poverty-stricken and disease-infested spiritual slums on the planet. Yeah, they are spiritual slums. And not only that, if you go there to be fed, you get enslaved and you become poorer as a result of it. And it's it's just so sad. And when when uh, these seeker driven churches talk about the fact that they have a you know a, a large flow of people going out the back door, they're not lying. That is absolutely true. And uh, over and again, studies have shown that people stay in these you know seeker driven mega churches two and a half, three years, and then they're done. Why? Because they're starving to death, because they went in with some wealth and they came out completely, I mean, we're talking threadbare, naked, poor, spiritually. These mega churches are slums. They are spiritual projects. And the worst kind of sin and disease spiritually is taking place in them. And all of this in the name of God, in the name of being seeker-driven, all of this in the name of uh, of growing the church. But the church doesn't grow by man's methodologies. In fact, some a man who has $5 in his pocket, a Bible, a loaf of bread, and a cheap bottle of wine is ready to do church. I'm, I kid you not doesn't matter if the venue is is in the slums in somebody's home in 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 a in a really seedy part of town somebody with 5 bucks in his pocket and the reason why he needs 5 bucks is so that he can uh, pay the uh, pay for the bus fare home so somebody with 5 bucks in his pocket a bible a loaf of bread and a cheap bottle of wine is it has a turnkey solution ready to do church. The only thing he needs at that point are, are congregants, people to come. And remember, where two or more are gathered in the name of Christ, he is there with them. And so forget the trappings. Forget the trappings. You're looking for the marks of the church. So you got a preacher who knows what the Bible says, and he's there to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, is prepared to open up the scriptures and bring forth the treasure of the gospel and our great and mighty reward, Jesus Christ, and is there to placard him. All he needs is five bucks in his pocket, a Bible, Cheap, yeah, cheap bottle of wine and some bread. And what have you got? In a short amount of time, even if there's only three people there, him and two others, feasting on the Word of God, you have wealth beyond compare. Wealth that is, that when you compare it to what's going on in the seeker-driven churches, you there could be no comparison. But you have to learn to look for these things not with the outward eyes of the world. Because the world sees power. The world sees wealth. The world sees huge numbers of people and they go, Ah, oh, this is where something is happening. But that's not where the kingdom of God happens. The kingdom of God truly happens in the most humble and obscure places. You wouldn't believe it. 
It happens on a dirt floor church in Haiti. It happens in a backwater region of South Africa. It happens in Madagascar. It happens in the persecuted church in China. It happens in India, where Christians are being killed. It happens in Pakistan, where Christians are being murdered. And the only thing, they don't have a mega church. They, I mean, and if they were to have a building, all that would be doing is putting a target on their back. Remember, the, 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 the church went forward during extreme persecution by the Roman emperor in its first few centuries. The Roman Empire wanted to squash Christianity. It was an illegal religion, and getting and, and people finding out that you were a Christian that would get you killed. They would put you up. They would zip you up in animal skins and then throw you into the arena or the Colosseum for entertainment and feed you to the lions, or you would be basically tarred but not feathered and then stuck on a pole and then you become a tiki torch at Nero's garden parties. And yet the church grew. Why? Not because it was seeker sensitive and not because it was seeking for the relevance that the world is looking for. No, it grew because it provided human beings with the only thing that was truly relevant in this sinful, broken, fallen world, a world where you and I and our sin are the problem. We're not innocent, we're guilty, and we know it, and we know because God has put his law in our hearts that we're going to stand before him someday and give an accounting of our lives, and we know that things aren't the way they should be, and we look when we look behind us, we know that we're the problems because we leave a wake of destruction behind each and every one of us. Even the best of us still hurts other people. Even the best of us still sins in thought, word, and deed by the things they do and don't do, and Christianity offers the real solution. It's the only one, and it's not the one that people are looking for, but it's the one they need, and that's a crucified and risen Savior, God in human flesh, Emmanuel, come to earth to die on the cross for the sins of the world so that we can be forgiven, so that we can be pardoned, and our response to that as a result of the life-giving faith that's given to us through the preaching of the gospel is nothing less than miraculous. It's praise and worship to God and it's love to our neighbor. Not because we have to, but because we've been set free from the slavery to sin, death, and the devil. And the devil can no longer point a bony bony finger at us and say that you're mine. We say, oh no, we've been bought with the blood of Christ. And so where the church really exists is where God's word is preached. The gospel is held forth, Christ is placarded, and where the Lord's Supper is received in accordance with the gospel. Take, eat, this is my body, broken for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. Take, drink, this is my blood of the new covenant, shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. For the forgiveness of your sins. For the forgiveness of your sins. Of your sins. And so the kingdom of God moves forward in a, in a very real way, quietly. And, the, and where we think that the greatest wealth is in the church is where the greatest poverty is. And it's all so sad. 
And one of the reasons I do this program is to say to people in the mega churches, I know you're starving. I know you're hungry. And I can give you a meal. And that meal is Christ and his word. Listen to this program and you'll see that there's so much more to Christianity than what you've been told. So much more than what you're being told. And as a result of it, Christ hasn't abandoned you. And there are answers and there are churches out there where the pastors are bringing forth the riches of heaven Sunday after Sunday. But if you look at them according to the world's eyes, you would have to say, man, this place isn't rich. This place isn't, doesn't appear blessed by the world's standards. When you, look, when you judge the church based on the world's standards, you're going to miss it every time. Open your eyes and see. Don't be seeing but not perceiving. Understand this. The greatest wealth we have is Christ. He is our great God and Savior. He is our great reward. And any church, regardless of their physical poverty that preaches Christ and Him crucified for your sins, is bringing you the very wealth and treasure of heaven here to earth. And there is no greater thing that a pastor can do than to open God's Word and feed God's sheep and to administer the Lord's Supper in accordance with the Gospel. That is true, true wealth. All right, glad I got that off my chest. All right, on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, like I said, I've got so much I could talk about here. (laughs) Where do I want to go? You know, I'm going to start off with a, um, uh, you know, I'm going to, in light of this, you know, I think it would be behoove me to uh, read a, uh, an article from Fast Company about Willow Creek that I think is worth passing along. So let me um, cue up the vintage news music here. From Fast Company, which is actually a pretty decent business magazine, especially their, if you go into their archives and look at the stuff from the first couple of years, fantastic stuff. I should know I have an MBA. Anyway, um, Fast Company, uh, from their website, uh, and this is from a December 6th article written by Jeff Chu. The, article, the headline reads, How Willow Creek is Leading Evangelicals by Learning from the Business World. Now, I've been to Willow Creek. It's quite the uh, arena. And, um, and despite all of, their, all of the money they've poured into their campus, there's not a single cross on their campus. Despite how many people show up, that is just one big spiritual slum. It is. It really is. But anyway, um, I thought you'd find this interesting. Uh, Willow Creek, one of the nation's largest and most powerful megachurches, leads evangelicals by learning from the business world's best. Hmm. Wow. (sighs) This is just sad. You know, I'm sorry, but um, the business world is quite a world, okay? I have, a mem- I have an MBA from Pepperdine. I know about business. I know about corporations. I've spent, uh, you know, a decade in the, uh, in the corporate world. And I can tell you this, that um, um, the business world can be dog-eat-dog. The business world can be rather shady. And the other thing I know for a fact 
is that the business world is similar to the church world. And what I mean by this is is that the business world is subject to the latest whims and ideas that are floating through the business world via business gurus. And as a result of it, um, there's a lot of popular level business books that are making that you know that people are buying and managers are buying and your your boss may you know want you to read one of these things and after reading it you you just might be slapping your 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 palm against your forehead why because even the business world has just some really dumb ideas and there's some really strange kooky people out there as business gurus just like there's a bunch of really weird kooky people out there that are pastors and so, you know, why is this a great thing? I, I, I have no idea. Um, you know, let, me, let me read. Um, Jack Welch called the other day. He wanted to talk to his friend Bill Hybels. Forget the notion that the ex-GE chief is a curmudgeon. This guy just gushed. Bill is a man with enormous capability, a man who can rally a team around a vision. Wow, that's quite some praise from... Jack Welch. Too bad um, Bill Hybels is not on Celebrity Apprentice, which I think he'd probably do a fine job there. Um, uh, is Are pastors supposed to uh, rally teams around a vision, their own vision? No. The job of a pastor is to care for God's sheep and to preach the word, to placard Christ and him crucified for our sins, and administer baptism and the Lord's Supper for God's sheep in accordance with the gospel. But, I mean, yeah, hey, you know, Jack Welch thinks that Bill Hybels is a great guy because by business standards, Bill Hybels, well, he's got it all together. He's probably one of the most successful CEOs on the planet. But the church doesn't need CEOs. The the church needs shepherds. And... um. Let me give you, if the, you know, having spent some time in the corporate world, you, you know, I understand how these things work, um, and so do you because you've uh, received these and probably given these. But I mean, every, if if you're part of a company that uh, that is forward thinking, one of the things that they do many times is they either give you quarterly or annual reviews, and that is is that your boss is going to sit you down and and is going to basically go over your performance over that. A particular period of time, whether it's quarterly, every every six months, every year, and is going to tell you the areas that you're doing well in, and the areas where you need some growth, and maybe give you some suggestions on how you can grow in those areas. And the uh, the idea here is is that you know you don't want to remain static in the job that you're at, but you want to grow and 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 have the potential to compete for jobs that pay higher higher salaries so that you know maybe you can send your kid to private school or you know you understand what i'm saying but here's the deal okay let's say for a second that um for the sake of this example let's pretend that you are a bank teller okay now you're saying well i'm not a bank teller i know i know you're not a bank teller and, and if you are then you know you understand what I'm saying. I've been a bank teller before, and so what happened? You know, when you get your review, I mean, what they're looking at is accuracy and how well your you know your accounting of your cash on a daily basis is, your customer service skills, you know, how well how tidy you keep your teller stall, you know, things like that. 
and uh, and you know and and so you're you're looking in and let's say you you're really hoping to you know to get up to that loan officer status so that you can out get out from behind the teller line and and so the only way to do that is is if you become the head teller and then from there you can you know if a position comes available in, in a in a branch for a loan officer you could you know you've got to go and you've got to get training on those lines but so you're going to get your review as a bank teller okay and um and so i and let's pretend i'm your boss and so i immediately pull out a sheet of paper and and i say to you well it's time for your annual review and uh what i'm going to be doing here is um let's see here you know i you know i i just am bored with this idea of giving you a, an annual rev- performance review based upon the fact that you're a um a bank teller. And so instead what I'm going to do is I've I went onto the internet and I found a performance review uh that uh, that uh, is used in the nursing world. And so what I'm going to do is I I'm going to judge your performance based upon how good of a nurse you are. You would look at me and you'd say, "You're out of your mind." What I I'm not a nurse. I've never been to nursing school. I don't take care of patients. I yeah, I am a, I'm a bank teller. And ah yeah, no no, we got to be forward thinking here, you know, and uh you know, stop confusing me with facts. You need to be a little more postmodern in your approach here. And so let's see here. Uh okay. Uh bedside manner with patients. You know, um yeah, I'm going to give you a 3 out of 10 on that. And you're going to go, "What? I've never taken care of any patients." And you go, "That see that's exactly the problem is is that you haven't." And so, but I don't want to be, I don't want to completely demoralize you. And so I'm going to give you a three out of 10 and tell you that this is an area that you're going to need to improve uh, if you want, if you want to get uh, an increase in your salary next year. And so I'm going to be watching you to see how your bedside manner is doing. And okay, let's take a look here. Um, uh, Okay, administration of, uh, of, uh, of medications. Yeah, you know, um, you haven't been really doing very well there. And, um, you know, I'm concerned about, you know, whether or not you accurately understand the amount of dosages needed for the acuity of the patients that you're that are under your care. And you'd look at me and you go, what are you talking about? I am a bank teller. I come to work. I go here in this bank teller stall right here. I count money. People come and they ask me to pay, cash their paychecks. They make deposits. They want me to make cashier's checks and things like that. And I, I've... I've never once administered a single medication to somebody who and I don't even know what an acuity is. What does that mean? And you go, yeah, yeah. See, that's the problem is, is that you know you're just not measuring up. Um, so I'm going to give you a two, and you, you get what I'm saying here, okay? So you you would be very frustrated at the end of this um, this little. <clears throat> exercise because you were being ju- you your job performance was being judged based upon a rubric that is used for nurses and you're a bank teller it just doesn't make any sense well that's the same thing that's going on here jack welch is the uh, retired ceo of general electric and jack welch i mean in the business world he really made some waves he he really truly was pioneering and forward thinking and a lot of his methodologies and his ideas are still studied today in uh in business schools and they ought to be. Ed Jack Welch was controversial and at the same time I mean he earned a lot of money for uh, uh the shareholders uh, there at General Electric. 
But when Jack Welch says that it says Jack Welch called the other day, he wanted to talk about his friend Bill Hybels. Forget the notion that the XGE chief is a curmudgeon. The guy just gushed. Bill Hybels is a man with enormous capability, a man who can rally a team around a vision. Well, that's the equivalent of basically doing a job performance review um, with a, the wrong rubric in hand. This would be like if I judged you in your bank teller and I judged you based upon how well of a job you're doing at nursing. Same thing applies here. Jack Welsh gushing about Bill Hybels, well, that's silly. Okay, um, Jack Welch knows business, but Jack Welch doesn't understand what it means to be a shepherd to care for souls, to preach Christ and him crucified. Jack Welch has, I mean, he's not trained in that. He doesn't understand that. He doesn't get that. And for him to be all gushy and ooey-gooey about Bill Hybels because Bill Hybels is capable of rallying a team around a vision, well, that's judging Bill Hybels based upon business standards, not biblical standards. You're using the wrong measuring stick. By the business world's standards, Bill Hybels is successful. <laughs> but by the churches, he's a complete and utter failure. By the standard laid out in the Word of God as far as what a pastor is supposed to do, Bill Hybels is not a success. He is an abject failure, a complete nimcompoop. And you're going, man, Chris, that's, that's kind of hard. Yeah, I know. But see, just like I don't judge, I don't sit down and do performance reviews with bank tellers based upon a rubric for nursing. You don't sit down and and decide whether or not a pastor is successful using business standards. You decide whether a pastor is successful using the standards laid down in the clear teaching of the Word of God. And when you apply that rubric, when you apply that test for job performance, you find out that Bill Hybels is he's not qualified to be a pastor. He's doing he's doing the wrong thing. He's trying to do nursing at a bank. That's how far off he is. Let me continue. Bill runs a fast-growing organization based just outside of Chicago that today has affiliates on every continent except for Antarctica. I have my four E's, well said, referring to the four leadership qualities he looks for in executives. Someone who has energy, who energizes others, who has edge, someone who can say yes or no decisively, and who can execute. Bill has all of them, along with a strong P, passion. He's a winner. He could be running a company or a country. Yeah, he probably could, but he has no business running a church. None whatsoever. He could be, but he's not. Instead, Bill Hybels runs a church, which he shouldn't be. Willow Creek, the congregation that he founded 35 years ago, has grown into one of America's largest on a typical Sunday. 23,000 people attend services, and they leave starving. And each year since 1995, Hybels and his team have done something unprecedented. They run what amounts to a pop-up business school called the Global Leadership Summit, bringing a stellar faculty including Jim Collins, Colin Powell, and Jack Welch to the Willow Creek campus. And don't forget the heretic, um, let's see here, Bishop T.D. Jakes. In South Barrington, oh yeah, and uh, Brian McLaren. Uh, To teach pastors and laypeople leadership and management. And we're supposed to be excited about this. 
No, we shouldn't. Because spiritually speaking, if you were to look at this according to the biblical standards laid down for a pastor, we have to conclude that Willow Creek is the greatest example of a church failure on planet Earth. That people that are there are suffering from abject spiritual poverty. And that the person who leads that church isn't qualified to do so. And it would really be a boon for the church and the business world if Bill Hybels took a job as a CEO at a Fortune 500 company. Just something to think about. All right, we are up on our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Hello, I wish to register a complaint. Uh, we're closing for lunch. Never mind that, my lad. I wish to complain about the sermon that I purchased a day ago from this very boutique. Uh, yes, uh, what, what's wrong with it? I'll tell you what's wrong with it, my lad. It's a dead sermon, that's what's wrong with it. No, not possible. You just preached it wrong. Look, matey, I know a dead sermon when I preach one, and I know that the sermon I preached yesterday was certainly dead. Jesus Christ wasn't mentioned once, not even in the footnotes. No, no, you just weren't charismatic enough. Remarkable sermon, beautiful imagery. The imagery don't enter into it. It's stone dead. No, 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 no. You're just not open-minded enough. All right, then. If it's not dead, then I should be able to preach the gospel. I read a portion of it. Ahem. And then the camp counselor told all of the woodland creatures to become more righteous so that they, too, could get to the place called heaven. You, you see what I mean? This is ridiculous. There. Yeah. I found the gospel in the sermon. No, you didn't. That was you just writing the word gospel on the cover of the room temperature sermon. Well, I never. Yes, you did. I, I never, never did anything. This entire sermon fails to preach anything that's worth anything to anyone. Now, that's what I call a dead sermon. No, no, no. You haven't looked deep enough into yourself. You must be joking. Yeah, well, you're just being divisive, and you refuse to accept the message that's being presented. Um, now, look. Now, look, mate. I've definitely had enough of this. That sermon is definitely rotten. And when I purchased it not but a day ago, you assured me that it was Christ-centered, cross-focused, and filled to bursting with the gospel. Well, if you would just read the title. Read the title? What kind of title is this anyway? Super Spiritual Happy Fun Friends Adventure Camp Pack. 
Well, this particular sermon is designed to draw large audiences, and that's what you said you wanted. It has lovely imagery. Look, I took the liberty of examining this sermon after I preached it, and I discovered the only reason why I bought it in the first place was because it had been put into the wrong sleeve packet. Well, of course it's in the wrong package sleeve. If I hadn't put a less suspicious cover on the sermon, you'd have had people chasing you just so that they can hear you preach it. Chasing me down the street? Mate, listen, people wouldn't be chasing me to hear this rubbish if I was firing midgets out of cannons. It's bleeding demise. You didn't buy the midget cannon expansion pack? The sermon has passed on. The sermon is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to me and its maker. It's a stiff. Bereft of life, it burns in hell. If you hadn't put it in the wrong package sleeve, I would be using it for Firestarter. The thought processes that brought it about are now history. It's off the twig. It's kicked the bucket. The bleeding choir invisible wouldn't listen to this sham. This is an ex-sermon. Uh, well, well, I, I'd better replace it then. Let's see. Uh, Christ-centered uh, gospel Jesus. Well, sorry, Squire. I've had a look around in the back of the shop and, uh, well... We're right out of well, whatever it is that you're looking for. I see. I see. I get the picture. I, I got a sermon here from Rick Warren. Does it contain Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice? Well, no, not really. Well, that's hardly a replacement, is it? Look, if, if, if you're really dead set on the whole Jesus thing, I suggest that you look up Pirate Christian Radio. All they do is talk about Jesus 24-7. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Pirate Christian Radio? Very well, I'll give them a try. The Christmas season is upon us. It's time for parties and gifts and all that kind of stuff. Do you have a Christmas party or potluck that you need to plan for? Or maybe you enjoy giving food gifts for Christmas. Either way, Pirate Christian Radio's featured holiday sponsor, the Wisconsin Cheese Man, has a huge variety of gourmet cheeses, sausages, cakes, and cookies. Oh, I'm getting hungry just thinking about it. Just for you. They have gifts such as their cheese and sausage combo pack or their cheese great gift basket or my personal favorite, the Big Nibbler. Whatever your holiday taste might be, the Wisconsin Cheese Man has exactly what you're looking for. So if you would like to purchase something from the Wisconsin Cheese Man, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheese. Click on the banner provided there, and you will be taken to the promised land of gourmet cheeses. <laughs> and just remember, a portion of everything you purchase from the Wisconsin Cheese Man, after you've clicked on that link, goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheese today. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money 
on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheapo Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Morning. I don't care if your church has an annual budget of $100 million a year, but if your pastor ain't preaching Christ and him crucified for our sins, your church is poor. It's poverty-stricken. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you'll find uh, two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46. 038. Okay, um, I've got to make a decision here about something I want to cover. Um, yeah, um, hang on one second. I should I flip a coin here? What am I gonna do? All right, um, here's what I'm gonna do. Um, I've already mentioned this guy once this week, I'm gonna mention him again. His name is Steven Anderson. He's got a church called Faithful Word Baptist Church in Tempe, Arizona, and this guy is a living uh, stereotype. He's a living caricature of a KJV-only legalistic fundamentalist Baptist type, and um, I, 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 I'm always thankful for the uh, the very interesting snippets and and. Uh, videos that people leave on my Facebook wall that they would like me to take a look at. And, um, oh boy, this, oh boy, this is just crazy. You, you gotta, when we do discernment work, um, so funny, over and again, uh, when I read the church fathers, <laughs> one of the hallmarks that the, Christ, the, the, the early church fathers point to the Christians as the thing that distinguishes us from everybody else Let's see if you can, and, and rather than doing the church fathers, let me see if you can fill in the blank. Are you ready? They will know we are Christians by our blank. Okay? They will know we are Christians by our blank. Is it hatred? They'll know we are Christians by our KJV Bibles? Uh, or will they know we are Christians by our love? Yeah. Steven Anderson, I get the feeling I'm going to end up picking on this guy quite a bit. He reminds me of the uh, KJV-only version of uh, William Tapley, except for he doesn't really deal in the prophetic. Instead, uh, Steven Anderson is, uh, just say, let's, let's put it this kindly, he's very skilled at fighting windmills. Yeah, very, very skilled at fighting windmills. And uh, right now, one of his big... Th- 
Jeeves, you know, is the English Standard Version, which is the Bible translation I use. Now, I read Koine Greek. I've been reading Koine Greek for 20 years. And um, I got to tell you, when I am doing translation work in the Greek, yeah, I, my translation doesn't read like the ESV. It doesn't read like the NIV. It reads a little closer to the NASB. Uh, and um, when you tra- when I'm doing translation work, I, I, my uh, translation work ends up being more of along the lines of a word for word rather than a thought for thought kind of translation. But never once, not once, even working in the Textus Receptus. Okay, I do have a copy of uh, the, uh, the what's called the Textus Receptus, which is a, a Greek New Testament. Uh, that, uh, that supposedly the King, you know, the King James version is uh, is you know is based upon. Even when I'm working in the Textus Receptus, um, my I've never once, not even once, have I mentioned that not even once have I ever translated a passage and had it did it even come close to what the King James version says. And you're going, oh, you must be in league with Satan. <laughs> No. Um, I don't know if you've all noticed this, but um, King James English, you know, English is a language that is is alive. It, it, it And living languages have a tendency to move. Um, you know, now I don't know this. I don't know this from personal experience, but I was talking with a gal who knows uh, modern Greek. And uh, the, by the way, the Greek word for water is hudor. And uh, but but I do know this that if you were to uh, go into a modern Greek restaurant, you know, in Greece itself, and order a glass of hudor, they would think you're nuts because apparently uh, the Greek language has shifted enough, you know, over the past two millennia that hudor doesn't mean just water; it means like holy water. And so you, you know they don't serve holy water at restaurants. But in in Koine. Uh, there's no implication that uh, that who you know hudor means holy water. It, so you understand what I'm saying. Things change. So uh, when you and I communicate, I don't use these and thous and um, the language of King James and the 17th century and 17th century English from uh, Great Britain. It, it's different today. It's we don't do and so as a result of it. Uh, the King James Bible is historically a very important translation. Um, there is no such thing as an inspired translation. Um, there are translations that are more faithful to the Greek text and the Hebrew text, and there are some that are not nearly as faithful and that they've got problems because they represent some kind of academic bias. And so, you know, let me give you an example of like a bad translation. That would be the uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses New World Translation. Their translation seems to bend over backwards in, in such a way as to do everything they can to obfuscate the deity of Christ. Um, and so as a result of it, their translation is just miserable in spots. I mean, just in fact, it's just flat out deceptive and lying. And then you think back to some of the debate over the TNIV. The TNIV, when it first came out, well, it um, had, you know, well, they were trying to have more inclusive 
language, you know, so that we can be politically politically correct. And uh, yeah, the problem with that is is that it wasn't necessarily faithful to the pronouns being used in the biblical text, either in the Hebrew passages or the uh, or the Greek uh, sections of the Bible. And so, yeah, in those cases, I I'm not a big fan of you know trying to make your Bible translation. Um, palatable to the current cultural mores. No, 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 no. You just, you know, no. The, the question is, how do I translate this text, which was written in this language, into the target language that I'm operating in? And that is, and so in my case, it would be 21st century American English. And, uh, you know, how, you know, and, and so that, you know, that, you know, that, that's the idea. And so, and the, you want to stay faithful to the text. And the reality is, is that you'll find this if you uh, operate in any of the biblical texts for any amount of time. There are th- there are there are euphemisms, there are Hebraisms, there are phrases that um, that just don't translate well into English. As a result of it, you have to. You, first of all, you got when you run across one of those things, you have to figure out what is going on here. What does this mean? And you know, because you know, for instance. If I were to travel back in time and, you know, let's, let's you know, grab my uh, DeLorean, I don't have a DeLorean, but grab my DeLorean, hit 88 miles an hour and somehow fly across the Atlantic and land in uh, first century, uh, uh, the first century Mediterranean world. And if I were to use the phrase, you know, hey, listen, we got a leg up on the competition. They'd look at me and they go, what's with this leg up thing? I don't understand. What, what, what are you talking about? What does it mean to have a leg up on the competition? And you go, Oh, uh, yeah, that's a euphemism, and that, that means something from where I'm from. But it, yeah, I, you don't know what that means. Same thing happens when you're when you're translating the Bible. There are Hebraisms, there are euphemisms, there are there are popular phrases back then that were shorthand for something that you know when you when you run across it when you're translating it's it's hard to bring forward. Anyway, the point I'm trying to make is is that there are good translations and there are mediocre translations, and then there's paraphrase, which is paraphrases which I try to avoid like the plague. Uh, but the idea here is is that their their value and their worth has to do with their fidelity to the original text. That being the case, the ESV, as somebody who operates in both languages, I can tell you definitively, it's a fantastic translation. I like it. I, I think it's more faithful than the NIV. And uh, you know, quite frankly, you know, I think the NIV realizes that they're they're losing market share to the ESV, which is one of the reasons why. And, you know, I never covered this story, but uh, they're 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 coming out with a 2011 version of the NIV, and I'm going too late. I'm already gone. <laughs> you know, I've been. I and and what I found is is that over the years, is as I when when the NIV was the Bible that I was operating in. I found myself aggravatingly having to correct it, uh, you know, f- based upon my understanding of the of the of the original languages, and uh, and so the the ESV doesn't suffer from uh, some of the shortcomings in the NIV. But here's the deal: I the NIV is a perfectly fine translation. You, it's the Word of God. You're going to hear correctly Christ and Him crucified for our sins. You can use that Bible to. Defend the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, you can, you know that, that that Bible clearly teaches the de- the deity of Christ and other things. And so, as a result of it, the idea you know, you, every translation has its limitations and its strengths, and you and you need to approach them with that in mind. And if you want to go deeper into understanding the Scriptures, then you need to take the step and you need to take courses 
in Koine Greek and in Biblical Hebrew. And believe me when I tell you, it, it'll open your eyes to a whole new world. Because um, watching, you know, basically all translations um, are like watching analog television. Okay, think of, you know, it, 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 it's, the idea is, is that in, in, in many cases, the signal's coming in in black and white. Okay, you, can st- you still can follow the storyline. You still know who the main characters are. You still laugh at the right places. You still cry at the right places. And you still feel like you've, you've seen and experienced the story. Okay, every English translation is like an analog television set. Okay, reading the Bible in the original language is is 1080p HD, <laughs> you know, high definition television. Okay, <laughs> you're gonna see things you didn't even know were possible to be seen. It, that's the difference. Okay, and so. Um, you know, if you want to see all the subtle contours, you want to see the different turns of phrases, you read the biblical languages. That being the case, I don't have a lot of patience for guys like Steven Anderson and his KJV only rants. Not only are they silly, okay, but you know, I, I don't find myself desiring to defend the King James Version as if it's an inspired translation. It ain't. Okay, it, it like every other translation has its strengths and it has its weaknesses. And the reality is, is that many of the of the texts that were available at the time of the King James version, um, th- those texts are not the same texts we have available today. As a result of it, they were they were okay, but we have found older and more reliable manuscripts that don't have nearly as many textual uh, problems. As the as the text that the King James version, the sixteen eleven version, is based upon, and as a result of it, I think our current day modern translations do a far better job of getting us closer to what those original manuscripts actually said and what they what was being conveyed. And I think we can say with about ninety eight ninety nine percent certainty that we're we're pretty confident of what we what we we know what was written in those original manuscripts. And as a result of it, you know, we can trust modern scholarship on these things. But we've got Stephen Anderson, a man who specializes in fighting windmills. And uh, here's an example of fighting a windmill. Here we go. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now, that's a pretty clear statement, isn't it? It says, hey, Jesus Christ... Because he was in the form of God. Being in the form of God, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He said he's not stealing any glory from God by being equal with God because he was in the form of God. Because the Bible says in Colossians chapter 1, in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That's what the Bible said in Colossians chapter 1. The Bible says, unto the Son he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness and a scepter of thy kingdom. Jesus Christ is God, so he's not committing a robbery by making himself equal with God. All right, let me help you out here. Um, What Stephen Anderson is basically trying to argue, and not very well, because he's not familiar with parallelism. If you have your Bible, flip on over to Philippians chapter 2. Now, I'm going to read it from the the, uh, ESV. 
And the reason I'm going to read it from the ESV is because he don't know what he'd be talking about. He's basically making the claim that the ESV is engaging in blasphemy and is denying the deity of Christ. <sighs> it doesn't do that at all. All right, so here we go. Um, let's, and let me put my, pull up my Greek New Testament, and I'll have this open side by side because um, let's... Yeah, let me make sure I've got this uh, verse 5. Got it. Uh, and, okay, being in the very nature, morphe, got it. All right, so let me let me read this from the ESV, starting at um, verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, what is going on here? Well, let me read it from the King James, verse 6, so that you can see what's going on here, and then I'll I'll kind of flesh this out for you. And... Here's the funny part of it. <laughs> Are you kidding me? From the King James Version, um, you're, you're going to die. You're going to die. Um, oh, this is so funny. Fighting windmills. Okay, backing up to verse 3, I'm reading from the King James. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, Okay, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. Okay, so let me let me back this up. Uh, verse six in the ESV says, uh, "Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped." Okay, now watch this. Let's continue. That's why the Jews took up stones to stone him. You remember that? They pick up stones to stone him and say, "Because you made yourself equal with God." Read for us from the uh, perverted ESV, Brother Garrett, Philippians 2.6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God the thing to be grasped. Did you hear that? So according to the ESV, it says, you know, even though he was in the form of God, now that's not what it says in the King James. It says, hey, being in the form of God, that's the reason why he didn't count a robbery to be equal with God. This one says, well, even though he was in the form of God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. It's like he didn't, you know, he couldn't grasp that. Do you see how this has changed it from being a great verse telling you that Christ is God? Now the ESV has changed it to something saying that he is not equal with God. Oh, that is just ridiculous. So what is he quibbling about? You know, who um, Stephen Anderson, the fighter of windmills. He's arguing the, with the fact that the ESV says that um uh, even though he was in the, it doesn't say even though. It says though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The ESV is not denying Christ's deity in this passage at all. It's actually rather strongly maintaining it. 
And let me give it. Let me give you an example. Okay. Let me explain to you parallelism from the, uh, you know, this is a biblical concept. This is one of the, the things that the biblical authors engage in, okay? Now, think with me for a second, okay? Um, let's pretend for a minute that, um, that uh, here's the deal. Positionally, you and I are the same. I'm a, I'm a human being. You're a human being. So let's, let's bring our dogs into uh, consideration here, Okay. And so what we're going to do is we're going to consider our dogs as 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 even though they are created by God they are they don't have the they're not, they don't bear the image of God so they they don't have the same status as us or we can you know you know how we talk about angels it says that humans are a little lower than the angels okay so here's the deal if I were to tell you that your dog Ruff okay yeah your your dog's name is Ruff I I know you didn't know this but you know, there you go. You've got a dog. His name is Ruff. And let's say that Ruff decide, decided that he was going to be a humble dog. And your humble dog, Ruff, has decided that he's not going to consider equality with you something to be grasped. And you'd say to me, um, Chris, Ruff is a dog. And it's not humble for Ruff to claim that he's not equal with me as a human being because I'm his master and in in the pecking order that God has created in the creation human beings are the pinnacle and dogs are somewhere lower on the totem pole and so it's not humble at all for my dog Ruff to say I'm going to be humble and not consider myself equal with my master um, and uh, yeah my, yeah see that's that's not humility okay the reason why is because by nature Ruff ain't a human being and it's not humble to not try to grasp, you know, equality with human beings. It's humble instead to recognize your state. Okay. Now, keep this in mind then. The same thing applies to Jesus in this passage. And when here it's talking about Jesus, who, even though he was in the form of God, that means he was by nature God, the Greek word there being morphe, and in the form of God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing and was found to be in the form of a servant, right? Well, if Jesus didn't have positionally and by nature the nature of God, then it wouldn't be humble for him to decide not to consider equality with God something to be grasped. That would be just, that's reality, that's not humility, okay? So what happens is, is that Paul here is engaging in a parallelism. He's using a parallelism, saying that each of us should have the same mind as Christ. That even though he was by nature or in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Um, you know, taking on the form of a servant, being born in likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This passage just drips the deity of Christ. And so the idea here is, is that we're to arm ourselves with this same with this same idea, that even though positionally we are equal with all of our brothers and sister human beings on the planet, we are to love and serve them as if we are their servants, okay, having the same mind as Christ. It's not that by nature that people are are, are better than us, just like Jesus, even though he was God, it was not, you know, he, he was 
he had equality with God because he was God. Instead, we arm ourselves with that same idea. And this is the this is the parallelism here. And so Stephen Anderson is basically making a whole heck of a lot to do about nothing. And not only that, the, the, the ESV does a fine job, fine job of, uh, of defending the deity of Christ and proclaiming it very, very clearly. Let me give you some other examples. Let me give you some examples of where this occurs. For instance, Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, uh, 15, speaking of Jesus, he, Jesus, is the, in, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and earth, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell bodily, and through him to reconcile to, um to himself all things, whether in earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It's a perfect example of, of a passage that the ESV doesn't screw up. Or we can go with John 1, one in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Or we can go with John 5.18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Uh, Jesus in John ten thirty two. Many things I have shown you from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? Uh, the Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, make yourself to be God. The ESV does not try to hide the deity of Christ at all. In fact, what uh, Stephen Anderson is basically trying to... T- prove here is is that the ESV is as equally scholarly dubious as the uh, New World Translation of the Jehovah's Witnesses. It's not. It's not even close. In fact, not only is the deity of Christ, you know, correctly and boldly proclaimed in the ESV, um, you know, you can't miss it. You you just can't miss it. In fact, I would even go to Hebrews, uh, Hebrews chapter uh, 1, which is absolutely beautiful uh, in the ESV. Let me read. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke uh, to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power, after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Or Hebrews one eight, but of the Son he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Yeah, the deity of Christ, rather than being hidden in the ESV, is rather rather boldly and clearly proclaimed. And uh, you know, here's one of the problems with the King James version only, folks, is is that they've basically made it a standard. You're, you're not a true Christian unless you're reading the King James only. 
And they see that's the badge. You see that that's the standard. It's it's an unwritten tradition, you know. And if you fall afoul of that, well, then you're, you're compromised. You're not really a Christian. That's legalism. And not only that, it's just silly. It's just absolutely silly. If you want to read the King James Version, no problem. Go ahead. But don't sit there and say to me that I'm less of a Christian and that you're more of a Christian because you read the King James and I read the ESV. The reality is, is I read the original languages. But that doesn't make me more of a Christian than you. It doesn't. And I just think it's absolutely silly. And what happens when this kind of preaching takes place? People's eyes are taken off of Christ. And the law becomes the measuring stick as to whether or not you're truly holy. All right, we're going to uh, take a break here. And when we come back, we're going to be listening to a sermon by Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. You don't want to miss it. It is fantastic. It is the exact opposite of the poverty that I was describing earlier today on the program. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, pirate Christian. We will be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. The Christmas season is upon us. It's time for parties and gifts and all that kind of stuff. Do you have a Christmas party or potluck that you need to plan for? Or maybe you enjoy giving food gifts for Christmas. Either way, Pirate Christian Radio's featured holiday sponsor, the Wisconsin Cheese Man, has a huge variety of gourmet cheeses, sausages, cakes, and cookies. Oh, I'm getting hungry just thinking about it. Just for you. They have gifts such as their cheese and sausage combo pack or their cheese great gift basket or my personal favorite, the Big Nibbler. Whatever your holiday taste might be, the Wisconsin Cheese Man has exactly what you're looking for. So if you would like to purchase something from the Wisconsin Cheese Man, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheese. Click on the banner provided there, and you will be taken to the promised land of gourmet cheeses. (laughs) And just remember, a portion of everything you purchase from the Wisconsin Cheese Man, after you've clicked on that link, goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheese today. 
Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Good sermon today. See if this suffers from spiritual poverty or is just chock full of the riches of the gospel and God's word. Oh, man, this is going to be a great sermon, by the way. All right, let's cue up the sermon review music. Ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Bethel Evangelical Free Church in Great Britain, in Hanley, Stoke on Trent. Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley presiding. Oh man, the, just sit down. And take this one in. It is so good. Ugh. The text that he'll be drawing from is from the Gospel of John, the story of Jesus at the uh, well with the Samaritan woman. <laughs> oh, man. What you're listening for, how is he handling God's word? Does God wor- God's word dictate what the pastor says? And then if it does, does the pastor point us to Christ? How does he handle law and gospel? Is the law used to convict us of our sin and show us our need for a Savior? Does it also show us what a good work is? And is the solution for our sinful problem, you know, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, trying harder, or applying three easy life application steps? Or is it Christ and him crucified for your sins and mine? If you've listened to this program for any length of time, then you know that uh, Pastor Charmley is masterful. See, even the uh, ukulele po- folks think so, too. I mean, they're singing about it. All right, let's, uh, <clears throat> let's kill this uh, music. So here we go. Uh, the name of the sermon is By Jacob's Well. Here is Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. Our scripture reading this morning is found in the Gospel according to John and chapter 4. John's Gospel, chapter 4. 
here following on directly from the account of the argument that arose between the followers of John the Baptist and over the question of Jesus baptizing people. So John's Gospel and chapter 4. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you the living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well, and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus asked and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. The water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water, springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman asked and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. At this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he had talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? The woman left her water pot, went away into the city and said to the men, come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. 
But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages, and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who weeps and he who reaps may rejoice together, for in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not laboured, others have laboured, and you have entered into their labours. Many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the, woman, of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Saviour of the world. Now after two days he departed from them and went into Galilee. But Jesus himself testified that the prophet had no honour in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him, and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The nobleman said to him, Sir, if sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed, and his whole household. This again is the second sign Jesus did when he'd come out of Judea into Galilee. And we trust God's blessing to rest on the reading from his holy and precious word. Our text is found in the, the passage that we read, the fourth chapter of John's Gospel. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. We shall be considering the first 26 verses of this chapter. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. John's Gospel, like all the four Gospels, is the story of a man. The good news that the church exists to proclaim is the good news of a man, the man Christ Jesus. It is not a philosophical system. It is a man. It is that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That God became man and walked the earth and lived and died for us. 
And we have seen in John's Gospel thus far, several people meeting Jesus. We have on the one hand the Jewish leadership rejecting him. Then we have Nicodemus coming to Jesus by night with a confused notion of who Jesus is but not quite sure. And then the disciples of John the Baptist who got the wrong end of the stick and they, despite the fact that John the Baptist existed, as Mr. Wesley puts it, he could say, it is all my business here below to cry, Behold the Lamb. John the Baptist existed to proclaim Jesus. Yet his disciples made it all about John. And John corrected them saying, No, it's all about Jesus. And so at the beginning of our chapter, beginning of chapter 4, the Lord knew the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John. Jesus heard of the Pharisees had heard about it, and the Pharisees opposed him. And so rather than staying in Judea, he decides to go to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. Now, strictly speaking, on a mere geographical standpoint, he didn't. Some, the Samaritans were, in some respects, a sect of Judaism. What had happened was, after the death of King Solomon, the Jewish nation, the Israelite nation, had been divided. And one, one group, based in Jerusalem, were Judah, the kingdom of Judah, and the other, the kingdom of Israel. And the kingdom of Israel had been governed from Samaria. But they had been conquered by the Assyrians, who had taken all the leaders off into captivity to Nineveh and the land of the Assyrians, and had brought in colonists who had intermarried with the remaining Jewish folk there. And so the Samaritans were regarded as half-breed Jews. And their religion had originally been a mixture of paganism and Judaism. But then, a disgraced priest from Jerusalem came to them and taught them, no, there is only one God. So they gave up all the pagan gods, but they corrupted Judaism. So they accepted only the first five books of the Bible as true, and they had made some alterations. And they had built their own temple on a mountain called Gerizim, and that temple had been destroyed about a hundred years before the time of Christ. Before the time this incident took place. It was destroyed about 129 BC. Now, of course, what this meant for the Samaritans was that the Samaritans hated the Jews because the Jews destroyed their temple. The Jews viewed the Samaritans as people who were corrupting the true religion and therefore as unclean, as heretics. So a Jewish pilgrim going from Galilee to Jerusalem would go around the outside of Samaria. But Jesus would go through Samaria. He must go through Samaria because there was a woman by Jacob's well 
whom he had to talk to. Okay, point something out here. <clears throat> Pausing for a second. You'll notice that Pastor Charmley is giving a lot of the backstory. This is all part, part of what we call the historical grammatical method. The idea is, is that when we're looking at Scripture, we're reading stories that were recorded in a time and a place that's different than 21st century Great Britain, 21st century America, 21st century Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, doesn't matter what part of the world you're in. And they had different customs. And you need to know a little bit of the backstory so that you can catch, so that you can more fully understand and deeply plumb the depths of the passage so that you can really see the different nuances, understand what's really going on. And Pastor Charmley's doing an outstanding job here in the historical grammatical way of really fleshing some of this out, because it doesn't matter what it means to you. The, que- the question is, what did the author intend to convey? And what was he assuming as part of that culturally? And so Pastor Charmley is doing a fine job of giving us the biblical backstory here so that we can catch some of the stuff that's going on. Great job. Here we go. We go to Samaria to have mercy upon this woman. And so we see in our passage, first of all, seeking a refreshment. Secondly, we see a surprising request. And thirdly, a surpassing revelation. Seeking refreshment, surprising request, and surpassing revelation. Now, this is outline. He's outlining the text for us. So that, you know... Notice he's not narrowing down to three easy applications that you can do to bust your sin. Yeah, no, 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 that's not what this is about. You know, instead, he's outlining the chapter now for us so that we can better really grasp what's going on. Let's continue. So first of all, we see seeking refreshment. He came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot, which is called of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being weary from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. And he sent disciples into the city to buy food. Now this was quite normal for a Jewish rabbi traveling with disciples. He would sit down and rest while the disciples went to get food. And he sits down beside the well. And there was nothing there for him to get water with. So he sat beside the well, seeking refreshment. We see Jesus faint and weary, thirsty and hungry from the journey. And we see that the Word became flesh. The reality of the Incarnation is this was not a stained glass Incarnation. The ethereal figure that seems to float a little above the ground. He was a real man who really became hungry and thirsty and tired. He knows our humanity because he is a man. God become man for us. We are reminded he came out of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. There was the gospel. Oh, man. Let's continue. And he gave him up to suffer. And we see even before the cross he suffered.
happen because he underwent the sufferings that we do. We suffer. Jesus too suffers. He suffered in the incarnation because he became a real man. With all the suffering and limitations that come with being a real human being. The one who is omnipotent, almighty, all-powerful, weary and tired because he is a man. He suffered and we are reminded that he suffered for us. He came to this earth seeking for us. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost, says Jesus. And he came to suffer. He was tired and hungry and thirsty. That we might be brought by his life and death into a new heavens and a new earth where there is no hunger, there is no thirst, there is no suffering and pain and sickness there. And Jesus suffered so that we might come to eternal blessedness and an end of suffering. And so we see Jesus coming seeking refreshment. But then we see the woman of Samaria coming. Well, she was a Samaritan to the Jews, a heretic and an outcast. And we have seen already that in Jesus' day, the Jews had become very inward-looking, as in many ways they are today. They become very inward-looking. And they said, not only is salvation of the Jews, from the Jews, but it's for the Jews and the Jews alone. So they became very inward-looking. They weren't interested in making converts. Now people were coming. They were being converted, but the Jews weren't interested in that. That's why in chapter 2 you have the buying and selling in the temple. In the court of Gentiles, which was meant for the nations to come to worship God. Because they didn't care about the other nations. And so they looked at the Samaritans, outcast heretics, to be avoided. About 160 years before, they the Jews demolished the Samaritans' temple. And yet the Samaritans still went to worship. In fact, they still go to worship there today. They still go up Mount Gerizim, and in the ruins of that temple, they worship. But they were viewed as heretics and outcasts. The Jews had nothing to do with them. The religious people, God's people, the Jews, had nothing to do with these people who were in fact their own flesh and blood. These were people who had suffered the penalty for sin, for the sins of idolatry that had taken place in Israel. And yet instead of calling them back to the truth, instead of saying to them, no, your temple is is in the wrong place. Come and worship in Jerusalem. The high priest sent an army to demolish the temple. They were persecuted and hated. And this woman comes out alone. Because you see she was an outcast, even among her own people. The religious, 
of the Samaritans looked down their noses at her. Here is a woman who has had five husbands. Now we're not told anything about the circumstances around that. So it may well be that all five of them had dropped dead at some point. So she had five husbands. But certainly the culture would look at her and say, well, it's her fault. Whatever was the case, the Samaritans and the religious people would look at her and say, well, it's her fault that she's had five husbands. Or they could allow one remarriage, two remarriages, maybe even three remarriages, but five husbands, really. Not the sort of woman you want to associate with. And so she came out alone. It was normal for whole groups of women to come out of the well, but she came alone because no one else would have anything to do with her. Because they looked down on her as a terrible sinner. And so they shunned her, nothing to do with her. So she came, this outcast, coming to get water for this man and herself, this man she was living with who was not her husband. And then we come to the surprising request. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. Give me a drink, he said. And that was utterly surprising. Because he was a Jew. And she was a Samaritan, not only that, she was a Samaritan woman. The Jews would have no dealings with the Samaritans, they were heretics. We will take nothing, they said, from the hand of a heretic. And the Samaritans in turn would have no dealings with the Jews. And said they were the heretics. But then she was a woman. A woman. And again, there are people who say that Christianity has a low view of women. Tell you this, that the ancient world had a much lower view. An orthodox, pharisaical Jew in Jesus' day would have nothing to do, for as little as possible to do with women. It is said that the Samaritan, that the Pharisees had a prayer, Lord, I thank you that you did not make me a dog, a woman, or a Samaritan. They looked at women in a most appalling way. It would have nothing to do with women outside of their immediate family circle. And yet, here is Jesus speaking to a Samaritan woman. Because you see, Christianity has not driven down women. It has lifted women up and declared that women are like men made in the image of God. That all humanity is in the image of God. And there is value in every human being. And here is this woman, this outcast degraded, at least in the eyes of her society, and Jesus says, give me a drink. Jesus speaks and speaks to her. And the gospel, you see, is not for the righteous. I have not come, says Jesus, to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The outcasts, whose society, who religious people will have nothing to do with. He says, come unto me, all you who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you a rest. All. Not just those of you who are respectable. Not those who have gone through a process before. No, come all. Come guilty, come wretched, come just as you are. And he speaks to her. 
because he came to save sinners, real sinners, terrible sinners, great sinners. This is a faithful saying, says the Apostle, and worthy to be received by all. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. And she speaks, Amazing, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? But then he goes on to say, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. That is even more surprising. What is he talking about? She doesn't understand. Now, living water, of course, can refer to running water. And what came out of Jacob's well, the spring fed well, was running water. But she says, sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well, and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? And of course the answer is yes. He is much greater than Jacob, because he is Jacob's Lord. So he says to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water, springing up into everlasting life. You see, what he's talking about is not physical water, not the refreshment of the body so much as the refreshment of the whole person. Spiritual refreshment, spiritual satisfaction. The world offers so much, so many different things. It says, this will satisfy you, that will satisfy you. The whole trick, and it is a trick of modern advertising, is to say, this product will satisfy you. It will not satisfy you. It will not satisfy you. None but Christ can satisfy The world makes false promises, it says, you will be satisfied in this. Today, 31st of October, is Reformation Day, when we remember Martin Luther in 1517 nailing the 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg. And he was responding to the promises of Roman Catholicism. And Martin Luther was a devout Roman Catholic in his youth. And he earnestly sought satisfaction, spiritual satisfaction, in the Roman Catholic Church. He was a devout man, he was so devout he became a monk. And he sought satisfaction in the the work of a monk. The round of prayers and services and a get up at four o'clock in the morning, something like that, in order to have a service. And prayers day by day and teaching and preaching. And daily confession of sins, it said on one occasion, he spent six hours in the confessional. Now as a monk, there's not that much you can actually get up to. But he spent six hours confessing until his confessor said to him, Brother Martin, go away and do something really bad and then come back and confess it. But you see, the confessional couldn't satisfy. The Roman Catholic sacraments couldn't satisfy. 
awareness. He understood those words, the just shall live by faith in Christ Jesus. And he understood the gospel, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and that, that alone can satisfy. Christ alone can satisfy. And then all, all the doubts and the fears were gone. As he cast himself on Christ and Christ alone. And that, that is the message that we have here. That Christ can satisfy and nothing else can. Because Christ is God. So the message of the gospel is all about Jesus. And so we come to the surpassing revelation. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. She is coming to an understanding of who he is now. In her situation it would have taken very little to realise that she was a sinner. Because everyone round about her would have been saying it. Everyone round about her would have been gossiping and looking down their noses at her. And saying what a wicked woman she was. But Jesus helps her confession. He asks, go call her husband and come in. And she could have said, alright, and run off. Instead she says, I have no husband. And he helps her confession of sin. And so she says, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worship on this mountain, the Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Now there are some commentators who say, well this is her trying to change the subject, but this is not the case. You see, the forgiveness of sins required the temple. She is really asking, where do I go to confess my sins, to make sacrifice for my sins? Do I go up Mount Gerizim with the Samaritan priests, or do I go to Jerusalem? Where can I find pardon and cleansing from sin, is what she is saying. Where is that pardon? Which place? And he says, salvation is of the Jews from the Jews, not as they thought for the Jews alone but from the Jews into the whole world because salvation is in Christ and Christ has come from the Jews and yet his words are going to all the world proclaiming the gospel the remission of sins in Christ's name and so she says to him no so he says to her, well, you are not to go to Gerizim or Jerusalem for pardon. The hour is coming and now is when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. You do not need to go on a pilgrimage to obtain pardon. You do not need to come before a man who has been ordained for pardon. 
You need only come to God in prayer. You need only speak to him and so those wonderful words, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Now why is he faithful and just to forgive us our sins? It is for this reason that Christ has died. But whoever believes on him might not perish but have everlasting life. And so if one comes trusting in Christ, confessing sin, God cannot refuse a pardon. God cannot refuse a pardon to the Christian. To the one who is trusting in Christ. The one whose faith is in the one who here speaks. And so she says, well, I know Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will tell us all things. She has some understanding of Messiah. Now, the only passage in the five books of Mary that speaks of the Messiah, speaks of a prophet who will bring the word of God to God's people. So the Jews were thinking in terms of political Messiah, a man on a white horse who chased the Romans out. And for them, Jesus was very wary of saying he was the Messiah. The Samaritan woman is thinking of a man who will reveal God to her. Who will tell her all that God is and all that God requires. He says, I who speak to you am he. Now in the Greek it is, I am the one who speaks to you. And that I am, ego, I me in the Greek is the Greek translation of the words that Moses heard on the mount of God from the burning bush, tell them I am has said to you. Here is God, here is God in Christ, I am. Messiah and God, that is why he is the one who pardons our sins, who pardons our offences, and he reveals God perfectly because you see, he is God. God manifested in the flesh, God in Christ. And this poor woman, outcast of outcasts, found in him pardon for sin and eternal peace. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth, as the hymn writer puts it. And so we see her and Christ seeking refreshment, we see Christ, the reality of the incarnation, that he really is a man. The woman, the outcast sinner looking for physical refreshment but finding so much more. In the, in the startling request we see that Christ came into the world for sinners, for outcasts, for the worst of men, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And we see that there is satisfaction alone in Christ Jesus. He alone can satisfy. And then we see the surpassing revelation of God for us. Christ for us. An eternal life and pardon for sin offered to each and every one of us. Each of you. Christ alone can pardon and can bring peace with God. Have you come? Do you have the living water that God gives? 
He offers it now. He says, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Amen. Amen. Oh, that is the exact opposite of spiritual poverty. That is bringing forth the riches of Christ, placarding Christ and him crucified for our sins. The one who came to seek and save the lost, who came to seek and save real sinners, sinners like you and sinners like me. Oh, give me that gospel because that's the gospel I need. I don't need the other stuff because the other stuff is stripped, mined, and is worthless. Pieces of plastic junk. This is the real thing. Thank you, Pastor Charmley. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio, and that means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So would you like to uh, send me some feedback on what you've heard on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith? You can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Until next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.